0: Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, in this episode, you'll hear from Ann Arvizu, who is gonna tell you how to break into the pharma biotech industry and how to break out of the pharma biotech industry. But before we get into the episode, I want to remind you that my book is now available on Amazon. Go check out How Pharmacists Lead Answers from Women Who Are Leading, Succeeding, and Impacting Pharmacy. It's a great book dedicated to women in pharmacy leadership. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest is Dr. Anne Arvizu, who is a business advisor, entrepreneur, author, podcaster, leadership expert, keynote, and former Fortune 500 global executive. She is also the host of another podcast, uh, which is the Corpreneur podcast, so be sure to check that one out too. Um, Anne is the CEO and Medical Affairs Advisor at RXER Communications, which is a top global management consulting firm serving the pharmaceutical biotech industry. The companies Anne builds and affiliations she keeps all share a common focus of promoting productivity, health, and life balance in the lives of entrepreneurial women executives. After having experienced the debilitating effects of corporate burnout and seeing her clients on the verge of physical and mental burnout, she launched the CORE or C-O-R-E leadership initiative to promote those things, the productivity, life balance, and business building skills for entrepreneurial executives or corepreneurs. And welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast.
1: Thank you, Hillary. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, now that our listeners have heard a little bit about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro or share a little bit about your personal life.
1: Yeah, I would love to. So, uh, like you, I'm a pharmacist, right? I'm a PharmD. Um, I graduated back in 1998, and in 1997 in Philadelphia, I decided um, I really was going to break into the pharmaceutical industry. And back then, there were no uh, you know the the types of postdoctoral fellowships and internships and programs that there are mm-hmm. today. So I just decided I'm going to type up. Like I mean, back then it was a typewriter. You know, I <laughs> scrolled <laughs> scrolled the paper into the typewriter and you know typed up my one to two page resume. And I basically brought it or mailed it to multiple pharmaceutical companies. And now, you know, I live in South Florida, but at that time that was sort of driving Mm -hmm. around Southern, Southeastern Pennsylvania and, um, they're all there, Yeah, they're all there. It was Glaxo. It was Smith Klein Beecham at the time. Actually, it was Wyeth before they were bought by Pfizer, uh, it was Rome, polonc Roar before they, you know, AstraZeneca, there's everybody changed in the way they, hmm. where, how they are and how they are there now. But back then mm-hmm. I, I remember um, getting into Wyeth and doing my due diligence and then getting into Smith Klein Beecham as a permanent employee, as a clinical scientist. So I've always had the bug for getting in our industry. And mm-hmm. then fast forward years later, I've been a pharmaceutical executive, I have started out. I started out in research and development, and I researched um, full clinical programs and clinical protocols where I would author the protocol, present it at an investigator's meeting, and um, soup to nuts get it out onto the market. So once we had a very successful launch, and I was reached out, you know, by the vice president of medical affairs who was moving our. Co office, which was the Glaxo and the Smith Klein merger office, to Miami. And he said, do you want to come be one of our directors? And, you know, at that point I had been a manager, a study manager, a global clinical trial manager, a program manager. And I was so ready. Uh, It was January, freezing cold in Pennsylvania. And I'm like putting my toothbrush into (laughs) my bag. I'm like, how fast can I pack my bags? So they made me stay uh, until like probably I think it was June. They made me stay till June and, and finish out my cycle, write my clinical report, which was like the biggest thing that I had to do. And I was like, oh wanted to be in Miami that spring. But um, I never looked back. Then I became the director of medical information, medical communications, medical affairs, governance, and corporate communications for the GlaxoSmithKline Regional Office of Latin America. And at that point, I was given a very large team. I had six direct employees and then, uh, you know, an indirect team of up to 136. That was big for someone, you know, in their 30s. And I was just with Smith Klein Beacham. I actually had started my PharmD program. Um, so I didn't traditionally go straight into the PharmD because back when I was, I was actually in the last year that you could actually be a registered pharmacist, which I graduated from uh, University of Sciences in Philadelphia now, which was Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science back then. And, Mm -hmm. um, and then I did my PharmD, uh, paid for by SmithKline Beecham, which was wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I was able to get into that kind of work study program and, um, get all my internships in South Florida. And that was back, uh, back then. And in in 2004, I left GlaxoSmithKline and started my own company, RXCR Communications. And it has been a kind of in and out of the pharmaceutical industry dance for me. Uh, because I did go back into the industry when my company, you know, had pitched a job actually to Baxter pharmaceuticals and they said, well, I can't, you know, the way budgets are in companies, they couldn't afford the contractor, but they could afford the FTE. And so Mm -hmm. like you, you know, it's like the entrepreneurial thing on the side serves you and on, uh, you know, but I, but I have that corporate hat. So then I was able to be, um, Become the head of medical information, and and then three pick up three other departments within Baxter, and then I spun off. Um, Baxter became the spin off to Baxalta, so we had a corporate divestiture that I was able to lead. So that was an exciting business opportunity to lead that and um, acquire several new teams and become really a you know a part of shared services leadership in medical affairs, which was fantastic. I also had the knowledge management group, the corporate library, uh, literature services and surveillance. So that was just really fantastic for everything that I love to do as a pharmacist.
0: I um, hmm. Fascinating. Well, let's back up yeah. a little bit. What was it about the pharma industry that attracted
1: you? I just had a bug for it. I can't even explain it. It was like, I knew that was destiny. It was where I was supposed to be. I didn't, I had, um, experience in retail community pharmacy. I had experience in hospital and, and if I stayed in hospital, I probably would have gone the clinical coordinator route. Um, but I really was interested in clinical research and development. I wanted to create change for patients. I wanted to use my science brain and I loved research. So getting my first job as a, you know, first, it was a document specialist, you know, you humble yourself, you get your foot in the door. And I did. But it was within a few months that someone out, someone went out on maternity leave. And this happened twice in my career at GSK, actually, someone went out on maternity leave, and I became a full global clinical scientist. And then I took the largest clinical study there. So I mean, that was it, I, I, I had arrived, I had a, I had an AECB study, acute exacerbations of chronic bronchitis in the anti-infectives division with uh, respiratory indications at a top global company. And there's this, you know, kid from pharmacy school in Philadelphia when they said, are you going to go to the investigator meeting and present the protocol in front of 800 physicians? And I was like, well, I'll get there if you could get me a passport. (laughs) So, I mean, (laughs) I had just so much fun and so many stories in the industry. So I knew I wanted to be there and I still love my industry today. I serve it and I would go back in if I needed to come back out if I needed to. And my husband has a very similar job. He's an MD and he is also a head of medical affairs. So we've also, you know, my, me having my own company has allowed me to make the money I need quickly as well as support him and support the industry that, that I love.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. And just to hear, you know, people are always so fascinated, I think, in, um, you know, how did you get this position? And Mm -hmm. I think it's so funny that you started with, um, I literally took this resume around and just like (laughs) wanted to get a job. And, um, you know, because, you know, now there, there are a little bit more, I guess, defined career paths for pharmacists. There's a lot of like MSL roles yep. like that seems that to be one of the most popular um, role that pharmacists seem to take in pharmaceutical companies. Is that what you would say or or what are some of the other places or I guess within a pharmaceutical company that pharmacists really um can play a
1: big part? Yeah, that's that's actually a really great question because um, in season two next year on my podcast, that's exactly what I'll be describing, which is the functions of the pharmaceutical industry. So to your point, a lot of people believe that, you know, MSLs, that's that's the place that they can go, especially depending on location. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but there are so many ways now to shift into the pharma industry, whether it be an MSL or going into safety, pharmacovigilance, to Mm HEOR, right? Health, economics, outcomes, research, Mm -hmm. uh, medical writing, clinical research, and development of the actual products uh, in phase one, Mm -hmm. phase two, phase three, phase three B. That means phase three maybe wasn't quite robust enough, and you have to go back and do a few more studies before something or a Mm -hmm. particular indication comes out. There's the strategy Mm -hmm. area that a lot of MDs and PhDs also engage in medical information, all run by PharmDs, mostly medical communications, actually not all the front line We, we use a lot of nurses, especially in contact centers. So there's mm-hmm. the industry and then there's the support of the industry there. Then there's medical communications. So they're running the ad boards at the Congresses and you know, how, what kind of strategy are you drumming up at the Congresses? monitoring the booth, meeting people, patient advocacy. That's a whole nother group, medical writing, medical publications, and the medical writing industry is predicted to boom in the multi-billions in the coming next 10 years. So, so many people, hmm. um, so many people have asked me that question over the years. They, they all ask, how yeah, can I break into the pharmaceutical What is industry? the
0: medical writing and, and what is that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. You're teaching me something. I'm not Not well, I know that medical writing has definitely been been one of those things where I've seen a lot of people are kind of starting to get into, Mm -hmm. but yeah, tell me why you think that that's going to be one of the bigger areas. Is it's, you know these like pharmaceutical companies driving that, or what like who's driving some of that demand and what types of medical writing is needed? I mean, I know you know in this day and age. Um. so many people are going to go to Google or go to the internet to find their health information. And so you've got, you know, there's all this about the digital Mm -hmm. practitioner and, you know, um, Mm. using apps or things like that. But, you know, People want to like go and, and which is great. I think that they want to take a little bit more ownership for their health condition. It's not like you just go to the doctor no. anymore and they're like, well, you have diabetes and um, we're going to put you on this medicine and, um, you know, make sure you're eating healthy and doing some exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, now people can really go and do some of their own research because there are a lot of more. Resources out there, but yeah, tell me more about what you've seen.
1: Yeah, so for medical writing, I think the the shift is coming because of a couple of reasons. Number one, the large pharmaceutical companies are a lot smaller than they used to be, and many many roles within the industry are contract these days. I wouldn't hmm. say a that. majority. It's just the way the that business has gone lean, agile organizations, right? Trying to become a little more flat in their organizational structure because they are so big and so global and budgets Mm -hmm. are crushed. And there's been so many small pop-up companies and companies buying other companies, the small biotechs. And then the way uh, there's been a shift in the um, the types of therapy areas that are being studied. So for example, in rare disease, in rare disease, complete antithesis to what you see this year. In In a COVID world, when you see a Pfizer uh, or an AstraZeneca uh, or a Moderna and you see them just popping up studies, well, there's a ton of people who are waiting for a vaccine all over planet Earth. So there's no lack Mm -hmm. of patients. In rare disease, rare disease, for example, is defined as, in the US, less than 200,000 patients. In ultra rare Mm -hmm. disease, you're looking for a needle in a haystack to recruit a patient. And and it takes a long time. So so teams are smaller Mm -hmm. internally. Therefore, it's great Mm -hmm. to outsource some of that writing. The second thing is the trust factor on the pharma industry. As you probably well know, for some reason, patients don't trust the industry because you hear of this lawsuit or that lawsuit or this violation of the FDA, and it's kind of like the proverbial throw the baby out with the bathwater, and it's not true because medical affairs we are the people that keep the company compliant. We are the compliance, we are the medical affairs, we are the ones writing and disseminating and distributing and creating that data. But having Mm -hmm. it done from an external perspective puts that extra layer in between the company and the trust factor for the external. So no, those aren't the only two reasons, but I would say those are the two that popped off the top of my head right now.
0: Interesting, yeah, fascinating. So, um, all right, listeners, if you're wanting to break into the pharma industry, she rattled off a whole bunch (laughs) of different areas that are not just titled an MSL role and, um, you know, brushing up on your writing skills is, is certainly important. I mean, I've got Grammarly on my computer to make sure that all of my grammar is right. But, um, I think with, you know, in pharmacy or in clinical practice, you get away from, like, some of that, um, I don't know, some of the more, like, English-style writing, which is needed because it's got to be more scientific. But, um, yeah, I find myself feeling like I need to read more of these, like, fiction books because all of my reading is like on leadership books (laughs) or, um, or, or just so many emails. Like there's so many emails and like new and, uh, new information to like stay on top of. It's hard to just, you know, kind of like get back to that, like good vocabulary and sentence structure and all that. But anyway, if that's a passion of yours, then I'm sure there's, there's a growing need. So, um, all right. Well, And Mm -hmm. let's see. So, all right, you really saw this need for women and wanted to kind of create a company to help support women entrepreneurs um, and specifically uh, anybody in the medical and pharma industry. Tell us more about like why you decided that was your patient population to, (laughs) that was your... No, you're not patient. Sorry, not patient population, but your your focus area, yeah, yeah, your business <laughs> population. Why do you want to help these people?
1: Yeah, it's just it just that's another thing that just sort of happened organically and grew from what I did. I I speak at a lot of conferences obviously, when you've been at director, executive director, senior director type roles globally, and you've had big teams, I know a lot of people in my industry. And people Mm -hmm. trust me. So you have that trust factor going on Mm -hmm. after, after you've done something for 23 Mm -hmm. years. And that's really important. So it's just, it would be really fun that I would come down. I mean, just example, last year, I was speaking at the um, San Diego Convention Center. Gosh, remember when we could all get together and actually go to a conference? Mm -hmm. That fun? fun. We'll do it again sometime soon. Maybe next year. We'll see. Um, even the Congresses, medical Congresses are all online. Like I was looking at when's the next rep- respiratory Congress and that's online. But I get done speaking on a stage or on a podium and I come down and literally it's, it's like clockwork. Women will come up to me and say, oh my gosh, how did you start this successful company? Right? Because I did build uh, RXCR to a seven figure company. And unbeknownst to me, hmm. that wasn't a big deal to me because you know, if you're an entrepreneur, that's not take home pay. Like you're paying your staff, your overhead taxes. Oh my gosh, there's so many things to um, there's so PL and you know, my travel expenses, everything. So, so it's it's like actually it takes that much just to recreate a pharmacist's salary and the type of salary that I had in the industry. So it's actually a lot of work, but it's invigorating. And I support my clients and they would be like, well, how can I basically break out of the pharmaceutical industry? Cause these are a lot of people that know me in the industry and how can I start a company like yours? And so I, I would also have my clients in the industry who maybe are a chief medical officer or a vice president uh-huh. of medical affairs or someone who's been at a, you know, a high level executive position. And I used to joke with them that I would start my day job at 5 PM because you're in meetings all day long from zoom to zoom to zoom from meeting to meeting for you know from call to call and it's like oh, at 7 p.m I can finally get home open my laptop and actually get this spreadsheet done that's due tomorrow or get this slide deck done that's due for senior management and and you're actually trying to get your work done and you have consultants around you and you have other people but there's this burnout factor and I think women can relate to that and when I start the conversation they, like, Mm -hmm. it's like they gel. So I started the thoughts on creating this Corpreneur podcast last year. And then I wrote a little book this year called Affluent Minds, pretty much for our community of women who do it all and have it all like you, you're a mother, you work, you're entrepreneurial. And, and there's this creative and nurturing, you know, part of us, that gives too much. Sometimes there's that old quote, you give more than other people think is wise. You care more than other people think is, you know, possible.
0: Because women feel like we have to overcompensate. So we feel like we have to work harder. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when, when people ask me, well, what do I do to quit my day job? I say, you really need awareness and you need to establish full awareness of your current reality. You need to really create the commitment, assess your fear. These are just a few of my like my tips on my tip sheet. I have a 10-step checklist on my website, anrvzu.com And you can literally go through the exercise if you want to quit your day job and start. Like I always say, don't quit your day job yet, right? Have okay. have a plan, write it down, make a plan. If you don't know how, find someone that does. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. but you know, being in any company these days, going back to our other conversation. You need the skill set of entrepreneurship. And then sometimes that's called intrapreneurship, or what I call being a corpreneur. And corpreneur is a lot more than just being a corporate entrepreneur. I trademarked the word corpreneur because core for me is an acronym. And I, and I, you know, trademarked the coined the phrase for it too. It means being centered, open, resilient, and energized. And I think that's huge. And those are skills that women can gravitate to, so can men. And, and, you know, the podcast, I get a lot of men that want to know, like, why can't I come to the women's conference? (laughs) So, you know, why can't Mm -hmm. I be part? So, but it goes back down to value-based leadership at your core, right? As healthcare professionals, we've all taken an oath and that Hippocratic Mm -hmm. oath says, first, do no harm. It's a values-based statement and leadership skills based on values like, for example, patient centricity. That can't be lip service. Mm -hmm. I have direct, well, my teams and I in the past have had direct contact in the pharma industry when companies decide to ask patient, you know, answer patient um, inquiries directly. And otherwise, Mm -hmm. you're, you're talking with patients' families. You're talking with healthcare professionals. You're guiding them on the data, but not guiding their decision making. And there's so much that we can do in our world that can drain us. And so that values-based leadership, business skills, and the type of, you know, things that even big companies are looking for these days, they're looking for the mindset of a healthcare professional, the skill set of the science, but they're also looking for the soft skills of a business executive. Mm -hmm. And that, we don't have the time for, you know, people to take 23 years like I did to learn it (laughs) and go to every Tony Robbins Mm -hmm. event. Like we have, we have a, a shortened time frame in our lean and agile companies these days and less to do with more, less budget, right? I, maybe you've seen that in some of, you know, the places you work, there's, there's a tiny budget for so many ideas that we want to get accomplished.
0: Yep. Yep. And you've got to be able to pitch it and get buy-in and, yeah. and all of those things and, um, Yeah. Fascinating. And I, I can totally relate to the, to value-based, um, leadership or, you know, like making sure that you live by your values because, um, that is so important and, um, essential to, to being a good leader, you know, like what are your values aligned with, you know, the company, whether Mm -hmm. you're starting it or you're working for, uh, for a company Um, you're not going to really gel unless you have those similar values. Exactly. Good point good point and Mm -hmm. i talk about that in the book that i wrote um just recently on um on women in in leadership uh it's called how pharmacists lead Mm -hmm. uh answers from women who are leading succeeding and impacting pharmacy so definitely a passion of mine as well is leadership and and specifically women in leadership um so yeah fascinating um, so Anne, you have done just so many different things, um, around, uh, pharma. You're definitely a, a guru there. <laughs> um, what would you say would be kind of your, your tips for climbing the corporate ladder? And, um, cause I think a lot of people are curious, you know, how did you start here and then get to all of these different director level positions?
1: Yeah, that is such a—it's a loaded and easy question. And really, I think <laughs> the the very short, simple answer is mindset, and having the right mindset. So, number one, of course, there are—you know—probably some of the personality tests out there, like DISC or what have you. Um, there are natural-born leaders, you know, and I know yes. that I have those skill sets, and yes. I know that I have that right mix of, you know, entrepreneurial leadership as well as creativity, right brain, left brain, but that doesn't stop you from breaking your own ceiling. If you can get yourself and your own self-sabotage out of the way and you can, you know, be there, listen, learn, uh, take, you know, you do have to take some coaching. You have to take some coaching throughout any kind of organization. You have to be a team player and it's not the ones with the egos that make it right. It, that, that just edges everybody out and people can see it. You can spot the phony a mile away. So I think right now there's a huge opportunity for people to become authentic leaders, to lead the way they want to lead. I have hired probably over 150 people in my career. And I'll give you an example of one young farm I think she was maybe two years in the industry and she wanted to move over from one division in the company to another. So she applied into one of our groups and I was not going to be her direct manager, but she, but, uh, the person who was going to be, I was doing the first interview and the person who was going to, that she was going to report to, we were putting him in a position of leadership and then we were putting another layer, a director on top of that, that was going to actually report to me. So this person was now three, three roles underneath of me. And she came into the interview going, I really want this. I want the title of manager and, In the end, that's really what she wanted. She wanted a title. So she came in, she worked a song and dance and she believed it and we believed it. And I know she believed it. So it was authentic that she really wanted to be this leader, this manager for this job at this time. And we hired her. And, you know, with any given job within 90 days, you, we, especially in a big company, we had the opportunity to say, are you happy? Because she would sit mm-hmm. in her desk and and slouch and play with her hair and she just seemed like everything she said she was going to do, I'm going to make this great, you know, um, I'm going to make great rapport with this therapy area and and I'm going to bridge this gap that we have within the organization. Nothing happened. And she fell behind, you know, so, so then it was like, I gave her the opportunity. Do you want to go back to where you were? It's actually okay. She came from a perfectly good place. They actually still had an opening and we were, we were able to shift her back, but not everybody needs to, sometimes you need to shift over to shift up and sometimes, and you have to be willing to do that, right? A lateral move can help you where there's a ceiling in one way, you know, play some Tetris with your career. And Mm -hmm. make sure that your motives are right, which was the point of that story.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great illustration. Um, And then, kind of going back to, um, you know, why is it that you think that so many people, you know, I feel like this whole entrepreneurial, you know, being an entrepreneur has this kind of like mystique. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people, you know, they're like, oh, I don't like my job. Let me be an entrepreneur because it looks so fun. But, you know, wh- well, one, why do you think maybe that is? And then two, I'm sure you will also add that it's not quite as glam, you know, <laughs> of, it might be even harder work um, if you're really trying to, to build up something your your own and like, it's it's all kind of up to you. So, um, what are your thoughts on oh, that Oh, that's
1: a fantastic question. And that's so true. I mean, first of all, if you're a workaholic in your business, you're going to be a workaholic as a entrepreneur, right? We, we take our habits with us. So, you, you know, the type of entrepreneur I am, I am that self-proclaimed <laughs> workaholic trying not to be because I can burn out just as easily as an entrepreneur as I can working too hard. Having Correct boundaries, having work-life balance, having great hobbies—all all matters. And if you ever, when you do enter the entrepreneurship realm and world, and you've been in all the types of pers- you know personal and professional development things like I've been to, um, you 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 get into a meeting, and Tony Robbins will say, "So uh, you guys are all CEOs. You guys are all leaders." You got into leadership because you wanted to work less and everybody bursts out laughing because they know you're working more. Mm-hmm. You know, they, especially if you're trying to build and scale an organization. If it's you and you're right. trying to coach or consult or, or build something where you're, you're recreating your salary, that can happen too. But you have to not be a slave to your client either at that point. So there's a lot of, it's it, it goes back to mindset and it goes back to personality. Um, that's a huge challenge but entrepreneurship is is it is like i say it's it's soul crushing but it's so rewarding all at once and you can do it as a side hustle and it it could make you you know millions on the side kind of thing but there's so many different ways i just see entrepreneurship and entrepreneurism the skill set whether you're going to be inside of a company or not as so critical for the era that we're moving into. And by that I mean mm-hmm. as we move into this post-COVID era, we're also be we're, we're moving into an age of unprecedented AI, unprecedented machine learning where the humanization and touch of a skill set and a one-on-one or a new solution to a problem that comes from a human being that you can latch onto, our community that you can create. I feel like it's going to be critical because if not People are just going to have to accelerate and speed up. And we're never going to be able to fight against a supercomputer. So I think that there's going to be so many businesses springing up, especially in the aftermath of the fact that it was millions and millions of jobs lost this year and 70 to 80% of those were women And for the first time in history, it's women over 50, they're not going to be able to find jobs. That's my category, right? And if they are, it's going to be harder or take longer. But for the first time in history, the millennials are having a hard time finding jobs in this post-COVID world. So this is sort of that necessity is the mother of invention realm that I think is going to birth like the thousand ships of entrepreneurial freedom (laughs) for some interesting women and, and women in tech, women in STEM, women in healthcare, pharmacists, MDs, we all kind of have this similar vein of these brilliant minds and creative nurturing spirits that I think, gosh, this is on. If we, if we march on, this could be the biggest shift in, um, the way business is done since the industrial age.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, um, after the, during the recession, kind of around the 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. there was that dip again, where, you know, you had new graduates who couldn't find jobs, things like that. And so people have to get um, creative and thinking about new companies. I think I did hear some kind of statistic that, um, there is a prediction that more and more people will own their own business, um, in the, in the future. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, necessity is the, the mother of all invention. So, um, lots of opportunity, especially in STEM. And so I think it's, it's great that there's been an emphasis in, getting more and more females Mm -hmm. in that industry. I mean, we've seen it already in healthcare, um, you know, more and more women, like women, of course, made up all of uh, most of nursing classes. Well, you know, within the past, you know, several years, that's also tipped, um, for pharmacy schools. I'm not sure on the latest stats for medical school, but, um, yeah, but, but actually in some of the, like the coding and the technology, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think that there is, there's definitely a need for that, um, as well. And then kind of shifting back, um, you talked about something that, um, that I wanted to, to point out as well. So you mentioned Tony Robbins at least twice. <laughs> and so I think that that's important too. I think that when people want to um, at least get, get their mindset in that kind of entrepreneurial um, kind of, vain, then they need to start listening to podcasts and following people that are kind of those motivators like Gary Vaynerchuk and and Tony Robbins. And, you know, um, really the inspiration for me starting my podcast was years ago uh, when I was listening to uh, Entrepreneurs on Fire with John Lee Dumas. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that, you know, people really need to kind of start following and kind of um, learning from them, you know, you definitely kind of get into that growth mindset, um, following those types of people. Um, and so that's really important to, you know, shift your mindset into that positive growth mindset. And then you can kind of start thinking about whether it's, you know, and it may not even be an opportunity, like you may not want to, or your own business may not, um, actually come to fruition, but if you're at a company like where I am, and um, I'm able to be creative and use some of those like inside uh, or entrepreneurship um, opportunities, then I think that you can still find a lot of joy in the work that you do. And so, like, maybe it's not at your current company, but you know, looking at those company values, and are you somewhere that um, you know? they're going to cultivate you and and take recommendations or are you somewhere where you know they're good with just the status quo so um, yeah, really interesting. So, and who's kind of your favorite, would you say Tony Robbins <laughs> is your favorite? You've attended some of his, um, conferences and get together. Well, oh, it's funny.
1: Cause you mentioned 2008 and like back when I started my company, 2004, I did anything and everything Tony Robbins had offered from 2004 to 2008. So I've walked on fire. I've uh-huh. like jumped off trapezes, you know, I've raced cars. I've done all these crazy things and all in the, all in the, vein of, I've got to become the entrepreneur that I need. It's not enough to just have this skill set of medical communications or medical affairs. It's, I need to also be this businesswoman. So learning these soft skills, like to your point is absolutely paramount. So I started off like with Tony, he was one of my first mentors. And back then it was not the huge amazing meetings that he's having now. They were much smaller. So I've had a chance to meet him a couple times. It's pretty amazing. Um, this year on my podcast, Corpreneur, I'd say Ali Brown has been uh, a mentor, leader, coach in my life. Uh, Carrie Wilkerson, you know, I have a couple people that I've interviewed on my uh, podcast and you can hear them there. And then I started interviewing people that are really, they're starting to knock it out of the park in their business, maybe in something different, like web design or branding, and I glean from them as a kind of peer colleague, like we are, that you, you, you as, if you can open your ears and just listen to other people to what they're doing, you can apply something to your industry or your business or your oh, hospital or your organization. Thing. So I really just mm-hmm. keep my ears perked in this world right now. And I think it's great. You know, would I ever go back out of entrepreneurship? I would for the right opportunity, right? But I am happy Mm -hmm. with what I'm doing and I'm able to do it well. Sometimes I think, boy, a job would be a lot easier. (laughs) You know, no more business Mm -hmm. development and everything, especially with this this COVID era, a lot of shifts have occurred in the way we Mm -hmm. do things or the way we do sales and marketing. And sales and marketing wasn't something we learned in pharmacy school.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Which is, you know, one of the things where I wanted to go back and get my MBA and did that last year. And um, so, yeah, it's never too late to stop learning. And I love your point about looking at other industries, and, you know, getting ideas. and, And yeah, I think some of that fuels a lot of creativity like listening to um I lo- love Reed Hoffman's like Masters of Scale podcast um you know there's some really inspiring stories like Sarah Blakely's of Spanx or you know just different things and it's it's invigorating to hear those stories and to you know kind of dream and and get inspired in that way I agree um yeah so well Anne, um this has been such fun to um chat with you about all things corepreneur <laughs> focused. Um, one of the things that I love to ask all of my guests is what is some advice that you would tell your younger self or for other pharmacists out there who are just getting started in their career.
1: Oh, okay. So my younger self, I would tell her if you are going to doubt something, doubt your limits because you really are mm-hmm. limitless. And I think the younger generation gets that you know, we have to break through so much noise these days. And back when I was young, I was pretty darn fearless. And in fact, I think my my younger self, maybe I should flip that. Maybe my younger self should be telling me that now. (laughs) So, so yeah, that's it. I Mm -hmm. think that's really key. You know, just doubt your Mm -hmm. limits, because they're the ones, those, those nasty negative thoughts that I think bombard young women, um, mm-hmm. cause we have so much socialization around us and so many narratives that say how we're supposed to look and how we're supposed to be and what to do with our family and what to do with our church or what have you, right? So many narratives, we have to throw off those bow lines and the limits and just go for what we really feel is right from our core.
0: Yeah. Awesome. That is great. Great. Don't doubt your limits. Um, Well, Ann, it has been such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast.
1: Thank you, Hillary. It's been an absolute honor.
0: For more about pharmacists in leadership, be sure to check out my new book, now available as an ebook and paperback, on Amazon. Go over to Amazon and search for How Pharmacists Lead answers from women who are leading succeeding and impacting pharmacy and I hope you check it out and if you liked this episode please subscribe rate and review this podcast it helps us to get in front of more pharmacists and others interested in the pharmacy industry we really appreciate your support in sharing this content Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, Connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.